The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so uh, let's carry on where we finished off uh, before the lunch. Uh, and uh, so this we're looking at the Bhaya Bhairava Sutta, Majjhima number 4, uh, and looking at the various qualities that are required or ideally required for uh, practice in solitude. And we have so far looked at some of the negative qualities uh, that you want to overcome. And now we're going to look at some of the positive qualities that you have to develop. And uh, when you kind of get these things right, that's when you are ready. One of the interesting things in the suttas is that the positive qualities and the negative qualities, they kind of always, uh, it's like they, um, they are opposite to each other. So the less you have of the bad qualities, uh, the more the good qualities kind of just arise by themselves. Uh, so either you can reduce the bad qualities uh, and then the good qualities come, uh, or you can increase the good qualities uh, and the bad qualities decline. Uh, it's like two complementary ways of thinking about the uh, uh, the mind and how the mind works. Uh, so uh, now then we're going to look at the other side of the coin. Uh, and there are four qualities listed here. Uh, and they are essentially equivalent to the five spiritual faculties apart from faith. Faith is missing, but otherwise they are essentially that. Uh, and uh, they in turn are also very closely related to the seven factors of awakening, uh, the Satta Sambhojanga. Uh, and so these are the kind of things that we are uh, looking at here. So, um, th uh, then the Buddha says, there are ascetics and Brahmins who are lazy and lacking in energy, uh, but I am energetic. Uh, yeah, and um, again, this idea of energy of the mind is a kind of a quality of the mind. It is not something that you do. Uh, you, you, of course, you can give rise to it by putting in the right causes and conditions, uh, but it's not energy does not mean striving. Energy means the natural energy of the mind uh, that arises as one of the good qualities uh, of uh, cultivation as you know, when the defilements go down, etc. And uh, uh, so this factor of energy, because it is a natural spiritual faculty, it tends to come with other spiritual faculties. Uh, so when you are energetic, that comes usually with mindfulness. Yeah? Mindfulness is there because energy is precisely that clarity of the mind, where the mind is happy, at ease, relaxed, a few defilements. So mindfulness and energy often come together, and it also often comes together with a sense of joy, pamuja, piti, these kind of qualities also arise together. If you look at the... Um, seven factors of awakening. Yeah, the seven factors of awakening, the first one is the sati sambhojanga, factor of awakening of mindfulness. Then you have the dhamma sambhojanga, which is the investigation of qualities. Then you have the virya sambhojanga. Virya is energy. And then comes the piti sambhojanga. So mindfulness, energy, yeah, and joy very closely connected with each other. So this is uh, kind of one of the important things. And you will notice in your own life how the energy of the mind can vary a lot. Uh, there are days when you have no energy, uh, the mind is flat, uh, you kind of fall asleep easily. Uh, uh, and there are other days when the mind is kind of charged, uh, charged with something uh, 
beautiful and powerful. Uh, and it's like you cannot really fall asleep. Uh, and they say that you have to be careful on a meditation retreat, yeah, that you don't get too much samadhi late in the evening because you won't fall asleep afterwards. You'll be The whole night you will be like a nuclear reactor lying in bed and you'll kind of <laughs> supercharged. You'll be really, really happy, but you will not sleep very much. Uh, and that may have bad consequences the following day sometimes. Uh, and uh, so this is kind of what happens uh, when the mind becomes very powerful in this way. Uh, and uh, of course, this is very useful. If you want to live in the forest, your mind is energetic, it's clear. When it has energy, it's able to deal with things. Uh, it is able to practice in the right way. You can deal with difficulties and all of these things uh, because you have the energy to do that. A mind which does not have energy is a mind which very easily succumbs to the uh, defilements or fears and all of these kind of things because you haven't really got the power to deal with it uh, so energy, one of the factors of both awakening and also one of the spiritual faculties. So energy matters. And then we have, of course, from that energy arises the mindfulness. And here it is specifically said to be that there are ascetics and brahmins who are unmindful and lacking in situational awareness. I am mindful and uh, in this five spiritual faculties, the one after energy is mindfulness. So you are aware, you are able to uh, work the mind properly. One of the uh, interesting things about mindfulness, once it gets sharp, is that it is called, the mind is said to be under the control of mindfulness. Sati adipateya is the Pali word. Adipateya is like being ruled by something Mindfulness rules the mind. And what that means is that you feel in charge of yourself. You feel that you are able to you know what's happening and you can take an alternative course. Yeah, you can move in a different direction if you want to. And so, for example, you are aware that maybe now some ill will or desire is about to arise. And before it arises, you can take an alternative Direction. You can think of something else. Look at the situation in a different way because you know what is going on. Uh, and not only do you know what's going on, but you have the wisdom to find an alternative route. Uh, so this idea of being mindful is very powerful. You feel in charge of yourself for the first time. Uh, so often in your life, you feel like you are under control of other things. Yeah, People often say, oh, I don't really think at all. It's just my mind thinking. My mind kind of throws out all of these thoughts. Uh, it's nothing to do with me Yeah. Just the mind doing these things. Uh. <laughs> Is that true? Huh? Has it nothing to do with you? Huh? It's an interesting question because it's hard to see, right? Do I want to think these thoughts? And sometimes it's embarrassing to admit that you want to think some of these thoughts. Uh. Are you embarrassed about your own thoughts? If you, if you had like a screen over your head that, that broadcast all your thoughts to the entire world, uh, would you be okay with that? Uh? <laughs> Probably not, right? I, not, I don't think any one of us would like the whole world to see everything that we think. It would be, sometimes it would be slightly, sometimes very embarrassing, but sometimes slightly embarrassing at the very least. Uh, unless you are really at ease with yourself. Yeah? I mean, I think there are people in the world who probably wouldn't be too concerned because they are so at ease with themselves, uh, whatever. Uh, someone like maybe Ajahn Brahm or something. But I think the, the vast majority of people would find it slightly you know, and we feel like we are in, under the control, under the sway of these things. And this is why the idea of mindfulness, uh, having the ability to think what you want to think, do what you want to do, say what you want to do, not things kind of coming out of your mouth too quickly or whatever. Uh, 
Yeah, this is actually something very attractive about that uh, feeling of being in charge of your own life. Now I want to have metta. Okay, so you send metta to people around. You have compassion. You have all of these wonderful qualities. Uh, and of course, that becomes even stronger down the track yeah, because mindfulness is only the beginning of being in charge of your mind. Uh, the next one, which is also called an adipateya, also being a ruler of the mind, uh, that is samadhi. Because yeah. when you have samadhi, even more powerful that rulership is uh, because then you, uh, the mind is very, very sharp, very, very clear. And even the tiniest bits of uh, you know, going in the wrong way. You can counter it uh, through uh, the power of the mind. Go uh, take a different route. Go a different direction. Think differently about what is going on. Uh, and uh, these are things that I think are often underestimated uh, on the Buddhist path. Things that people don't really understand. Uh, yeah, the sense of being in charge of yourself is actually very attractive. Uh, or so often we feel oppressed. Uh, of course, often we feel oppressed by external things, and that's terrible enough. Uh, but uh, even worse is being oppressed by your own internal mental states uh, that you feel you're not in control of. Uh, and um, you know, being independent, uh, being in charge of our own lives is one of the most attractive things in the world. Uh, being free, that's basically what freedom is about, uh, instead of being oppressed by all the things in the world. Uh, so uh, this, of course, explains why the Buddha-to-be is able uh, to overcome the fear and dread, right? Because he has that mindfulness that is able to uh, steer the mind in the right way. Huh? So you have mindfulness and situational awareness. Uh, situational awareness uh, here is what we talked about yesterday, very briefly, uh, the idea of uh, uh, of uh, Sampajanya. Someone asked about Sati Sampajanya yesterday, and it's an interesting topic. Uh, but uh, for most people, Sati Sampajanya just means doing the right thing yeah, during the ordinary life so you don't decline in spiritual qualities. Doing those things that improve your spiritual qualities in everyday life. That's really what Sampajanya is about. Uh, Okay, and uh, then yesterday we talked about the kind of various kinds of sampajanya, the purpose, suitability, uh, the um, field, uh, yeah, and then finally non-delusion, uh, four, four areas of sampajanya according to the commentaries. Uh. Okay, the next one is about samadhi, stillness. There are ascetics and brahmins who lack stillness with straying minds. Uh, I am accomplished uh, in stillness. Uh. And as I just mentioned, this is an even more powerful sense of being in charge of yourself, uh, of being able to guide the mind in the right direction. Uh, instead of having a straying mind, as it says here, mind which is kind of all over the place. Uh, uh, one of the definitions of samadhi in the suttas uh, is the lack of uh, straying or the lack of uh, distraction of the mind. The mind does not get distracted. Uh, it's one of the qualities of samadhi uh, so uh, the Buddha has that ability of stilling the mind. Uh, there are ascetics and Brahmins who are witless and stupid, uh, <laughs> who frequent remote lodgings in the wilderness and the forest. Uh, those ascetics and Brahmins summon uh, or they experience unskillful fear and dread uh, because of the defects of uh, witlessness and stupidity. Uh, but I don't frequent remote lodgings in the wilderness and forest, witless and stupid. Uh, I am accomplished in wisdom. I am one of those noble ones who frequent 
remote lodgings in the wilderness and the forest accomplished in wisdom. Uh, seeing this accomplishment of wisdom in myself, uh, I felt even more at ease about staying in the forest. So this is, of course, the highest of all the spiritual faculties, the faculty of wisdom. Here it is not really the full spiritual faculty, because the full spiritual faculty is only had by the truly noble ones, yeah, those people who are stream enterers, etc. Uh, but so here it means something slightly less. And um, you find this in the sutta, that this word panya, which is the, def- the word, Pali word for uh, wisdom uh, or someone who is wise it is used quite widely sometimes it means like the profound wisdom of the noble ones uh, and sometimes it means like the more ordinary wisdom of ordinary people uh, yeah, someone who lives well is said to have wisdom to some extent because you cannot live well without some kind of wisdom you have to understand the importance of that uh, so you already have some degree of wisdom sometimes that's all it means uh, that you are a virtuous and good person that means you're already wiser uh, it's quite nice, isn't it? Uh, so many of you probably have quite a bit of wisdom already. Maybe you don't think that, uh, but maybe you do. Uh, <laughs> that's kind of neat. yeah. Uh, you may be wiser than you think you are. Uh, and uh, so wisdom stabilizes the other faculties. Uh, because wisdom, especially when it is profound, when it sees into the nature of reality, uh, it understands where you find dukkha, where you have suffering and where you have happiness. Uh, and because it understands that, it's able to guide the mind in the right direction. You give up those things that are bad for the mind, uh, and you move towards those things that are good for the mind. And because you do that, it is natural for you to be mindful. It is natural for you to attain samadhi, because you know where to lead the mind at all times. It happens by itself. Uh, so wisdom is like the stabilizing faculty, the pinnacle, the, uh, the, the faculty that unifies all the other ones, uh, makes them all come together. So someone who is truly wise will be someone who easily attains samadhi. This is one of the ways you can, uh, you can um, judge whether someone really is wise or not. And when people go around claiming I'm a stream mentor but they can't attain samadhi, that is usually a bad sign. It usually means that they are overestimating themselves. Because these faculties are, um, they are tied together, they belong together in this particular way here. So the Buddha has that wisdom uh, yeah, that enables him to endure these uh, difficult things of solitude and living far away in remote forest lodgings. So that is, those are the qualities uh, that we are talking about here that, that you should ideally develop, overcoming the defilements that um, make the mind weak and then building up the good qualities that strengthen the mind. And uh, both of these things we should do together, uh, building up the good qualities and also removing the bad qualities. Uh, and as we do that, we create a mind that is very powerful and very able to practice this spiritual path. Uh, now, let us um, carry on with this. And uh, so then the Buddha says the following. Uh, He says, then I thought, there are certain nights that are recognized as especially portentous, the 14th, the 15th, and the 8th of the fortnight. On such nights, why don't I stay in awe-inspiring and hair-raising shrines in the forest, parks, and trees? In such lodgings, hopefully, I might see that fear and dread. 
Sometime later, that's what I did. As I was staying there, a deer came by, or a peacock snapped a twig, or the wind rustled the leaves. Then I thought, is that fear and dread coming? Then I thought, why do I always meditate expecting that fear and terror to come? Why don't I get rid of that fear and dread just as it comes, while remaining just as I am? Then that fear and dread came upon me as I was walking. I didn't stand still or sit down or lie down until I had got rid of that fear and dread while walking here. Let's just stop there. There's a lot of things going on here already. So, uh, first of all, you have this idea of the portentous nights. Portentous means like, uh, uh, what does it mean exactly? It's a good question. (laughs) Portentous is like... um, Auspicious, maybe auspicious nights, yeah, auspicious special nights uh, that have a portent usually means something to do with the future. It's like a, it's like you know something that portends something. It means that it uh, has an idea what comes later on in the future. Yeah. So there's something about these that are has a certain power to them. Maybe these nights, yeah, they are a kind of fascinating, interesting, auspicious, or whatever. Yeah. And these are the 14th, 15th, and the 8th of the fortnight. These, of course, are the uposita days. Yeah, the days when the moon is full and when the moon is new. And the moon is the half, half moon days. And these are the traditional auspicious days in Buddhism. Yeah, you have these in Sri Lanka all the time. People, that's when people go to the monastery and they wear white. And same thing in uh, uh, many of the other uh, Buddhist countries. Uh, and because they are powerful nights yeah that's kind of really neat when you go out the moon is full it's very kind of interesting the light is very beautiful you don't see that so much if you live in the city but if you live like we do in Bodhinyana Monastery you see the night the light is very powerful you see the night sky you see the Milky Way you see the moon coming up and it's very dark and then the moon comes up and it becomes very it's almost like it's not like daylight, of course, uh, but you can see the forest very easily. You see the shadows of the trees, uh, and it's kind of uh, it's kind of awe-inspiring when that happens. Uh, and uh, you know, sometimes they say people go a bit crazy when the moon comes up; they become werewolves and all these kind of things. Uh, but uh, usually, it's actually very inspiring. Uh, so in those nights, people would listen to Dhamma talks and they would do more meditation. In many monasteries in Asia and Thailand, they would meditate all night, yeah, walking and sitting, all of these kind of things, and use that moonlight to, to practice, do some extra practice. So it's actually very, uh, it's, it's very um, inspiring, inspirational. Uh, and then you have the opposite, when the moon is new. Uh, yeah, when the moon is new, there's no, no light from the moon at all. Uh, it can be incredibly dark yeah. really really dark because the stars don't really give off much light uh, and when the forest is really dark that's also kind of interesting yeah. and you kind of fumble around you don't know where you're walking yeah. sometimes I forget my flashlight uh, in the my cutie I had to walk back to my cutie without a flashlight uh, and that's really interesting yeah. you have no idea where you're walking yeah. so I walk like this with my hands in front of me to kind of save my eyes so I don't kind of poke out my eyes and that's and and that's uh, but it's also very nice because uh, you feel the world in a different way when you don't see anything yeah you become much more alert to hearing things uh, and you kind of feel the world world in a very different way huh? and this is what the buddha is talking about here yeah your other senses become very alert uh, you don't actually and when your other senses become alert it's like the everything shifts focus in a sense uh, 
And then the deer comes by, as it says here, yeah, or a peacock snaps a twig, yeah, or the wind rustles the leaves. Uh, and these things become very powerful, right? And they become very kind of awe-inspiring. Yeah? And you wonder, is this a ghost or is it a peacock or, or is it a tiger or is it a mouse? <laughs> you know that story with Ajahn Brahm, the tiger and the mouse, right? And the, the very famous Ajahn Brahm, because one of the things they would do in Thailand, they would go and sit on charnel grounds and cemeteries at night. Uh, or at least the Western monks, the Thai monks would never do that uh, because they had grown up on a diet of ghost stories. They were absolutely afraid, scared to death of cemeteries. Yeah, And uh, there's a famous story of Ajahn Shah. And Ajahn Shah, he would stay at the cemetery at night and he would be so terrified, even though he's one of the greatest monks in living memory, he would be so terrified. He, he thought he was going to die during that night. That was how terrified he was. Uh, and that's what happens if you are grown up on this diet of ghost stories. In the West, we don't hear many ghost stories. So we are whatever, yeah, okay. Charnel ground doesn't really matter so much. Uh, and so, uh, but Ajahn Brahm went, and of course, after we heard a few of those ghost stories, you start to wonder, maybe there's some truth to this. Uh, so, of course, Ajahn Brahm, he kind of heard, he was sitting on this uh, platform. They have these platforms that they sit on, not to sit on the forest ground, uh, so that you don't get bitten by insects and all of these kind of things. Uh, so, we're sitting on this platform, the sun was going down. Uh, it gets really, really dark around you. You're in the middle of this charnel ground, uh, this cemetery here. Uh, yeah, and there's kind of dead bodies maybe around, and there's no one else apart from these dead bodies. And then, of course, the sounds of the forest start to become very magnified, just like here, you don't see anything. Sound is all you hear. And then he hears this movement in the forest. He listens, okay, it's just a mouse, it's a small little thing, yeah, so don't worry. And then gradually this noise comes closer and closer and closer, right? Oh, yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's a cat, yeah? It's a bit more, too, bit loud to be, be a mouse, and it comes closer and closer. No, maybe it's a dog. Yeah, this is actually quite quite noisy. And then it comes really, really close. Now, oh, this must be a tiger. This is a really big noise. And at this point, he kind of getting concerned. He get this flush flashlight out. Yeah, and kind of puts the flashlight to see this tiger. And there it is, sitting next to him. It's a little mouse. <laughs> And this is, the, this is the mind playing with you, right? The mind kind of exaggerating these little things. And even for the Buddha to be, a similar kind of thing happening, yeah? Hearing these twigs, hearing these things in the forest. It's amazing how these things can lead you astray when these things happen, even for the Buddha to be. And these are things that we can relate to again, yeah? You can understand what is going on here. It's kind of obvious. And... Um, of course, uh, the, the Buddha-to-be, he's going to test himself to the max. So he goes to the most awe-inspiring and hair-raising shrines. Uh, shrines in those days and maybe in the present day are places where you put out food often for the departed people. Quite common even today in many countries. Uh, so you put out food for that uh, and then the ghosts would come to eat that food. That's, the, that's how it's supposed to work. Uh, and of course, if there are lots of ghosts around, those places might be quite... Uh, uh, quite scary, yeah? So you go to the scariest place in the forest. Uh, you're already by yourself uh, in the forest, but then you go to the most scary place. Uh, and then he is uh, saying, well, hope maybe I will find this fear and dread. So what is this all about? Why is the Buddha seeking this fear and dread? It seems like a strange thing to do. Uh, most of us would never seek any fear and dread. We would run as far away as we possibly can. Uh, but remember, unless you challenge yourself... Uh, you're not going to go anywhere. Yeah? You need to challenge yourself. 
And so I think the idea here from the Buddha's to be's point of view is simply to see what is possible, what is remaining of defilements. And if he does get fear and dread, why does he get it? What, what is the reason why these underlying things are still there? So it is about overcoming the problems of life, overcoming the suffering, trying to find a way out. This is really what this is about. And to do that, you have to challenge yourself sometimes. And so he takes this as far as he possibly can. So he <coughs> he's kind of hoping for the fear and dread to arise. Yeah, May I see this fear and dread? And then that is when the deer and the peacock come by, comes by. And of course, as soon as they come by, then he thinks, is that the fear and dread coming here? And then uh, he uh, decides uh, that when that fear and dread eventually does come, when it eventually does, then he says, okay, I'm going to keep on walking here until I overcome that fear and dread. Uh, I'm not going to sit down, I'm not going to stand, I'm not going to lie down, but I'm going to deal with it right here and now uh, to overcome it, to see what are the defilements and problems. Uh, so it's just this incredible perseverance in dealing with the issues of life, uh, having this confidence that, you know, find a way through it. Then that fear and dread came upon me as I was standing. I didn't walk or sit down or lie down until I had got rid of that fear and dread while standing. Then that fear and dread came upon me as I was sitting. I didn't lie down or stand still or walk until I got rid of that fear and dread while sitting. Then that fear and dread came upon me as I was lying down. I didn't sit up or stand still or walk until I got rid of that fear and dread while lying down. There are some ascetics and Brahmins who perceive that it's day when in fact it is night, or perceive that it is night when in fact it is day. This meditation of theirs is delusion, I say. I perceive that it is night when in fact it is night. I perceive that it's day when in fact it is day. And if there's anyone of whom it might rightly be said uh, that a being not liable to delusion has arisen in the world uh, for the welfare and happiness of people, out of compassion for the world, for the benefit, welfare and happiness of gods and humans, uh, it is of me that this should be said. Uh, so um, the idea here is that uh, the Buddha the reason why someone is able to become the Buddha is because they are lacking in delusion. And that lacking in delusion has to be there to some extent from the very beginning. It is the idea that you see things as they are. You don't fool yourself. You don't pretend that things are different from what they are. But you as, uh, you deal with the reality. And of course, this is exactly what this is about. They're yeah? dealing with the reality of the forest at night, uh, seeing it in, at the right, in the right way, overcoming the fear. Uh, and of course, overcoming the fear means basically overcoming the kind of the uh, illusion and the building up of fear in the mind. Because actually, it's just natural phenomena around you. It's actually just a leaf rustling in the wind. You're not afraid of anything real. It is just the mind building things up. Uh, and so you're overcoming this delusion. Uh, and this is really the hallmark of what it means to be a Buddha. The giving up of delusion and also having very little delusion from the beginning. Uh, that is what enables the Buddha to make this breakthrough. Uh, because what the Buddha does is something that is extremely difficult to do. Yeah, usually we come into this world where everyone has a sense of self. And being able to see through that without a teacher is just really 
uh, extraordinary here. And so this is what uh, makes it possible. So from the very beginning, yeah, you have to be non-delusional. Uh. And um, it's interesting. I always uh, thought that this idea of non-delusion is what makes anyone successful in life. Yeah? Why is anyone successful? Uh? It's because they deal with life uh, as it is. They're able to see the world as it is. Uh. If you are successful as an artist, you know what good art looks like. You're not deluded about it. Uh, if you are successful as a sports person, you know how to train in such a way as to maximize the performance of the body in that sport. Uh, if you are successful in anything, yeah, as a teacher or whatever it is, you understand what it means to teach in the right way or whatever it is. Uh, so non-delusion is like one of those... Uh, uh, basic things that make you succeed in anything and certainly of course on the spiritual path uh, where what you're trying to see through is very deep and very profound uh. so this is kind of what goes through and through the buddha's teaching non-delusion uh. it's a direct access to reality this is the way things are uh. and uh, so this is often why the suttas are challenging to us why when you feel challenged uh, what is being challenged is usually your delusion uh. Yeah, it is your your not being willing to really see things according to reality because something deep inside of you that wants to protect you from the reality because reality is just too much sometimes. And so, what that means is that we sometimes we have to be gentle with ourselves. We have to realize that the delusion sometimes is so profound. So, if you do read the suttas and you find no, this cannot possibly be true. I don't want to see it. Okay, don't see it. Go, go on, uh, and then come back to it later on when maybe you're ready for it. Uh, sometimes we have to have that gentleness with ourselves because actually it is hard to face our own delusions all the time. Uh, we need to unravel these problems gradually, stage by stage, uh, and then we can eventually maybe come to the to the truth. Uh, so, uh, and this is so important uh, because uh, remember, our, one of the problems of life is that we are born into this world deluded. Uh, we have the vipalasas, the distortions of the mind that makes it impossible for us to see things as they actually are. We come into the world, we already we have anger and ill will, we have all of these defilements of the mind. We come into the world, we already see a self where in fact there is no self. We already see permanence where there is impermanence. We have all of these delusions, they're already there. They're built into our psychology and we can't really step away from it. And so because of that, we need to face these things again and again, develop our perceptions, develop our views, uh, to come out of this uh, uh, delusion that we are so steeped in, uh, and uh, then gradually seeing reality as it actually is. Uh. But uh, it's weird, it sounds really kind of, when, you, when I put it like that, it sounds kind of tough and harsh and difficult. Uh, but of course, the right way of doing this, it is not necessarily that at all. Uh, very often the emerging from delusion just happens by living well, yeah, by doing the right thing, gradually building up good qualities that feel good inside. That actually is the emergence from delusion. The emergence from delusion is piti. The emergence from delusion is pasadi, the calm, the tranquility of the mind and body. Delusion, emergence from delusion is samadhi, the stillness of the mind. So it is not necessarily unpleasant. can be when you get challenged, but not necessarily so. All right, and so the Buddha arises yeah, in the world for the welfare and happiness of people. Yeah, yeah this is the um, kind of the idea of the Buddha. The Buddha is there, the only Buddha has only one purpose. Uh, he arises in the world for the welfare and happiness of people. Yeah. 
He, he is there out of compassion for the world. The Buddha's teaching, oh, he only teaches because of compassion for the world. That's the only reason the Buddha has to teach. It is one of those um, nice thoughts. When you think about the Buddha, or you reflect on the Buddha, or you do the Buddha Nusati, to remember that the Buddha does not have any interest in being a teacher. For the Buddha, the idea of being a teacher is a pain. Yeah, It is kind of hard work. He has to teach all these people and all these gods. All these gods are really tough to teach, you know. <laughs> because they are deluded. They don't really understand. And because they are deluded and don't understand, being a teacher can be quite challenging sometimes. You have to put in all this effort and you have no idea whether they're going to listen or not, whether they're going to understand, whether they're going to repudiate, whether they're going to go off and do something completely different. So being a teacher to all of these deluded people actually is just a hassle. It's just hard work. And for the Buddha, there's absolutely no interest. There is no ego anymore, so the Buddha is not interested in having disciples or being famous. That's kind of irrelevant for the Buddha. There is no desire for any requisites because he has everything he needs. He just goes into the village. People are very happy to support him with the basic requisites. So for the Buddha, there's only a downside in teaching here. And um, this is very nice to reflect on because that means that the Buddha's only motivation for teaching is out of compassion. He knows that he has the answer to the problems that people are looking, to an- looking for answers to. He knows that he has all the answers to life. He knows that he has everything everyone needs. And then, because he knows that, then compassion arises for people in the world. And he wants to share this understanding. And this idea, that compassion, is then comes out in the suttas. Right? Because it means that everything the Buddha says, it is not to please you, it is not to make you happy, it is not because he's a crowd pleaser or anything like that. It is not because he has any kind of vested interest in giving these teachings. He only teaches these teachings because of compassion. And so when you read the suttas, and when you understand that the person who is teaching this is a person who has the highest insight into the human condition, he knows what it means to be human. He knows what it means to suffer. He knows the way out of suffering here. This is the one side, the wisdom of the Buddha, but on the other side, everything he says is purely out of compassion for us. Yeah, and also for us, not just for the people at the time, but also for people in the present day. He teaches these things out of compassion for us. No other reason. Then when you read that and you see these teachings, you start to look at them in a different way. Sometimes you think, oh, maybe the Buddha is being a bit too harsh. Maybe he's being a bit too strong here. There are some suttas where the Buddha is actually quite strong. One of them is the Chattuma Sutta, Majjhima 64, where the monks are really noisy and the Buddha says, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with these monks. And people say, oh, please, please, you know, okay, okay, so he, he relents, of course. Uh, uh, other places, the, the lay people are incredibly noisy. And the Buddha says, oh, they're just like a bunch of fishermen holding fish. Fishermen holding fish, obviously very noisy. So, uh, and so again, uh, so sometimes it seems quite uh, almost uh, harsh, but I think that is a misunderstanding. Uh, the understanding is that the Buddha can be direct, uh, he can be immediate. Uh, he's not, he can, there can be a little bit of tough love with the Buddha, right? Because uh, he knows what people, people need. Uh, most of us, we, can't really, we shouldn't really be doing tough love because we don't understand what love is, and nor do we understand the Dhamma. So we should kind of be careful, right? Uh, 
So we should be gentle most of the time. But for the Buddha, he can do that because he knows. He's secure in where he comes from. He knows the purpose of what, what he's doing here. So what that means when you read the suttas, even if they seem a bit tough, uh, even if the insights just seem too profound, too hard to understand, uh, you take it on board. Uh, and if you don't understand it, you put it to one side and you come back to it later on. You never reject it. Uh, because you have this feeling there's someone here who only has my best interest at heart. And that opens up the suttas. It opens up the word of the Buddha. It means that you are much more willing to listen. And you take it on board in a different way. And that is very, very, very useful and very powerful. You don't do what many people in the modern world do when the Buddha says about, talks about rebirth. Yeah, yeah, that's just ancient superstition. You never think like that. Because that, to you, the Buddha is far too important to think like that. Uh, so this is uh, the idea of taking the Buddha as your teacher in a more deeper way. You really start to relate to the Buddha in a very different way. Uh, it is this compassion. Uh, he's an ordinary person with endless compassion for humanity. Uh, and this is what, what the Buddha is. Uh, and uh, maybe now is a good time to elaborate a bit on that. Because one of the things I always like to say on these retreats uh, is that... Uh, Remember that the Buddha is your teacher. Sometimes we think that the Buddha is not your teacher. How can the Buddha be my teacher? The Buddha was someone who lived two and a half thousand years ago. He lived in ancient India. He dealt with Indians in a very different culture, a very different society. Got nothing to do with me. Right? Wrong. <laughs> It's wrong because, uh, and this is another kind of very nice way of reflecting on the Buddha. And I say this on every retreat I give. Uh, and this is this idea that when the Buddha taught two and a half thousand years ago, he was not just teaching the people in front of him. Uh, of course, he was teaching them, but they were only part of a much larger, larger audience. Uh, so in front of him would have been the bhikkhus, the monks, the nuns, and the lay people. They would often all have been present during these teachings. And that is an important point to remember when you read the suttas. Usually the suttas begin with bhikkhus, yeah, monks or whatever. But actually, very often, everyone would have been present. But the Buddha, from the very beginning, he knew that he was setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma. Dhamma Chakka Pavatana. And the wheel of the Dhamma is this idea that once you allow these ideas of Buddhism, of the Dhamma, once you allow them to enter the world, enter the Sangha, enter, uh, allow people to listen to these things, uh, these ideas are so powerful, they never stop with the audience in front of you. Uh, because the audience in front of you will appreciate these words. Uh, and then they will teach them to their disciples. And it will carry on from generation to generation because of the power, the intrinsic value in these words. And then it will go from one generation to the next one, from one culture to the next one, from one century to the next one, when it eventually arrives in Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> it arrives at the BSV in Melbourne. And it arrives not just here, but it arrives everywhere around the world eventually. Yeah, it moves out. This is the wheel of the Dhamma moving on in the world. And the Buddha knew this. This is why this sutta is called the Dhamma Chakka Pavatana Sutta. He talks about setting these things in motion. He was aware of this. So because he was aware of this, he was expressing his message in words that are relevant for everyone. 
he wasn't just using the kind of the Indian idiom of the time. Uh, he didn't always talk in terms of how the Indians were thinking at that time, uh, but he expressed his message in a universal, in a universal way, so everyone is able to understand. Uh, it is kind of astonishing when you take some of the other contemporary literature in ancient India, like the Upanishads and the Vedas. Uh, this is the uh, literature of the Brahmins at that time. Uh, that was a local religion. It was a religion that was expressed specifically to the Indians at that time. Uh, and when you read it, it's incredibly hard to understand. It's almost impossible to understand. And you realize that this is steeped in that culture, steeped in a particular worldview uh, that is very hard for outsiders to grasp. And then you compare it to the suttas, it's a completely different ballgame. It is expressed in terms of uh, universal ideas of human psychology, of human practice, of human desires, human wants, human, all of these things. And so it is a feeling that these things are universally applicable. Buddhism is the religion in the world that has the far greatest universal characteristics in this way. And it is at least tied to a particular culture, a particular place. If you take the Bible, for example, I haven't read much in the Bible, but I felt obliged to sometimes read a few pages because I, you know, I guess I needed to know a little bit about what is there, but I was never really interested in the Bible. But when you read it also, you get the feeling that you are, tr you are enter a certain culture. Yeah, this is kind of the covenant between one people and their God. And other people have other gods, but our God is the only right one. And you get this feeling, just like you read, this, read the Vedas, or, or that there's all these gods, they are the humans are fighting, and then their gods are fighting in heaven against each other. That's, that's a feeling you get, right? It's kind of weird. And so all of these are small parochial religions that belong to a certain time and place, that are meant for a particular people. And that is also the biblical religion. That's where it emerges from. Whereas Buddhism is completely different. Buddhism is a universal religion. It has a large kind of worldview. Everyone is included. And in that way is another way that makes Buddhism very unique in human history. It's a completely different kind of religion. It is universal. There are so many things that are appealing about Buddhism that makes it really special and really unique. And of course you would expect that if what the Buddha's message is true, you would expect him to teach for gods and humans, for everyone. This is what we should expect of these precious teachings. So the Buddha, when he's expressing his Dhamma, he's expressing it to everyone. He knows there will be people in the future in faraway cultures, in faraway lands, uh, with different ideas, uh, with a different, with mobile phones. Yeah, <laughs> and he knows that. Wow, you got to express it very carefully when people have mobile phones because their attention span is very short. So you have to. <laughs> actually, you, everyone here, is very good, but sometimes you have to express it to the next generation whose attention span is very short. So we have to. Yeah. Anyway, that's for another time. And. Uh, and so that is why we can relate to these things. And what it also means, uh, and this is what actually is so interesting about this, uh, is that when you do read the suttas, uh, remember that this was the way the Buddha was thinking. Uh, he is teaching you. You are his disciple because he was thinking about everyone whose message, uh, who will hear his message. Uh, yeah, so it's coming from compassion. Uh, it is the Buddha having you as his disciple because he know that you will be there in the future. Huh? And then when you read the suttas, you start to shake a little bit. Oh, there's the Buddha teaching me. Yeah. Because that's kind of awesome because the Buddha has such a great reputation. If the Buddha is your teacher, huh? 
it is worth kind of, you, know, you start to, oh, this is kind of almost too much. I can't, not sure if I can deal with this. Uh, that's a good sign. You're trembling a little bit because you are, feel you are in the presence uh, of the greatest spiritual master in human history. Uh, so think like this. Uh, then the message start to come, starts to come alive. Uh, yeah? And uh, you can take it even further. Uh, and uh, the way to take it further uh, is to actually imagine yourself actually being in the presence of the Buddha. Because if you are in the presence of his message in this way, you're almost in his presence already. Uh, but take it one step further to actually be in the presence of the Buddha. Uh, do a kind of, let your imagination run a little bit. Uh, what would it feel like to meet the Buddha? Uh, imagine the Buddha sitting at the root of a tree. Uh, yeah, and then you... I've been told that there is this amazing spiritual master there. Your, your friend says, oh, maybe you should go and meet him. I heard some good things about this spiritual master. And you know it's the Buddha sitting there. So you start walking into this forest towards this tree. And how would you feel if you were about to meet the Buddha? <laughs> how, what would that feel like if the Buddha, you were there by yourself, it's only you and the Buddha, and it's just a forest, there's no one else there. And you are about to meet this person with this incredible reputation would you feel scared? If you weren't a little bit kind of scared, it would be a miracle. Yeah, it would be a little bit sort of, oh, well, this is kind of really, really interesting. Yeah. But then as you approach the Buddha, even though you are a bit apprehensive and perhaps a bit scared, if you have, your wisdom is very deep, you wouldn't be scared. But most people be a little bit scared and apprehensive. Yeah. And so then you approach the Buddha. And as you approach him, you feel almost like this... Uh, field of peace and kindness emanating from this person. There's something about this person that is unusual. At the same time, it's just a person. You get closer, you see this person sitting at the root of a tree, and it looks like an ordinary person. Someone with a shaven head, someone who's wearing some kind of robes, a little bit like monks today, but not quite like the monks today. And it looks like an ordinary person, but there's something about this person you can feel straight away is different. And because of that, you start to become peaceful. You start to calm down your trepidation and your anticipation becomes a little bit subdued. And then you walk all the way up to the Buddha. And you kind of, as the closer you get, the more peaceful you feel, the more subdued you feel in the presence of this Buddha. And then you kind of stand there, a little bit apprehensive. And the Buddha says, please sit down. So you sit down, and the Buddha says, how are you? <laughs> and what are you going to answer? You're not really sure what to answer. Oh, pretty good, I guess. <laughs> not really entirely sure what to say. And the Buddha says, maybe, have you, you, know, have you had a good meal? Are you kind of, you know, are you, are you okay? Have you come from afar? And you say, oh, no, I just, you know, just come from the local village called Melbourne, just over here. <laughs> And uh, then the Buddha says, well, why have you come here? And you say, oh, you know, I've got some problems at work or whatever. You know, can you please help me out? Uh, something like that. It's something very simple. Uh, and you feel a bit foolish because you feel now you're beginning to feel that you are in the presence of something very different, right? It's an ordinary human being, but a human being with qualities you have never seen before. Uh, Someone who is perfectly at peace. Uh, someone apparently without any defilements. Uh, someone with apparently endless compassion and kindness. Uh, there's something about this person that is very different. Uh, as it says in the suttas, just seeing an arahant in the world is a great blessing. Uh, because arahants are different. Uh, the 
vision of an arahant promises something much more powerful underneath. You're seeing the external qualities of something within that is very powerful. That's how you're feeling with the Buddha. And so you're not really, your fear is starting to disappear. And of course the Buddha knows that you're going to ask this kind of question because it's the kind of question everyone is asking. These are the real problems of ordinary people. So it's not as if the Buddha is going to be upset. He's not going to expect you to ask about enlightenment or anything like that, right? He's expecting to ask about small things. And so he gives you some advice. Okay, problem at work. You know, just be kind. You, you know, your boss is also suffering. Your employees are suffering. Everyone is suffering in the world. Have compassion for everyone because uh, that is going to be good for you and good for them. Uh, have kindness in your life. Uh, if you're always kind, uh, good things will happen, happen to you in your life. Uh, something very simple like that. And then while you're listening to the Buddha giving this kind of simple answer, it's an answer anyone in the whole world could give. But it's not about what the person says. It's about where it is coming from. It's this feeling of kindness and compassion. The feeling of peace and wisdom. This is what is powerful. And this is what you feel when these words are coming out. And I don't know if you have noticed that in your life, sometimes there are people in the world who have a certain power about them. Yeah, I love to sit to sit next to Ajahn Brahm because Ajahn Brahm emanates peace. He emanates kindness. When Ajahn Brahm gets in the mood and he gives a good Dhamma talk, I don't care about the content so much. I heard it all before. <laughs> what I'm interested in is the quality that comes through. Yeah, and it makes you feel peaceful. It makes you feel good. It's like this osmosis. It kind of penetrates through your skin and just goes into you and you feel good. And this is what is happening here. It is not so much what the Buddha says, even though that often is interesting as well, but not maybe in the simple, um, the, the simple exchanges like this. Uh, and then at the end of that, because you are so taken by the way it is spoken, uh, you just want to do one thing, you just want to bow down to this person. Uh, and you bow down with your heart. And when you bow down with your heart, full of confidence and faith that there's something powerful here, you feel a sense of, joy and happiness inside as you do that. Uh, you, you can't stop yourself from wanting to bow down. Uh. This is the kind of bowing down we should do also to the Buddha statue that represents the Buddha. Uh. These are the kind of feelings we should bring up. Uh. You just want to bow down because you know that you're bowing down to something wonderful, something extraordinary, some kind of wisdom, some kind of peace, some kind of promise uh, for yourself because this is another human being uh, who has found something extraordinary here. Uh. And I always like to say that what is painful to bow down to is an ego. Because if you bow down to an ego, a person who has a sense of self, you feel that you may be taken advantage of. You feel that the other person is not going to behave in a reasonable way. They're going to take advantage of your humility. But with, an e with a Buddha, it's opposite. You're not bowing down to an ego. You're only bowing down to good qualities. And when you bow down to good qualities like that, you're actually building up the potential for those same good qualities in yourself because you understand the importance of these things. And so you bow down to the Buddha and you feel so happy. And then you get up and maybe you circumambulate him with your right side towards him or whatever. And then you walk away here. And you walk away with a memory that will never leave you for the rest of your life. It is a trauma, positive trauma. Yeah? Entered your mind. You cannot forget this feeling of this person because it is so powerful. 
And this is kind of what it is like, maybe, to meet the Buddha, depending on your mind state, depending on who you are, depending on how you deal with the situation. So when you think about it like this, then it is when you start to become a real disciple of the Buddha. The Buddha is your teacher. The Buddha is a human being, just like you. But he has taken that human potential to the highest, to the highest level. And this is what makes the Buddha special. And so this is what we're trying to do when we bow down to the Buddha as well. Yeah? So try to see if you can do something like that. That is the right kind of faith and confidence. We're really using this to its... To the best, to, in the best possible way here. So, so anyway, so this is uh, uh, the idea here that the Buddha has arisen out of compassion for the world, right? Uh, for the welfare and happiness of people, uh, the welfare, benefit, and happiness of gods and humans. Uh, so this is kind of what uh, uh, lies behind this, uh, because uh, someone has this ability to share these teachings. Uh, then the Buddha says. Uh, or the Buddha-to-be, actually the Buddha says this, but he's looking back here. My energy was roused up and unflagging. My mindfulness was established and lucid. My body was tranquil and undisturbed. My mind was stilled in samadhi. And then he enters the first jhana. So uh, these here again are the... Uh, many of these factors you see here are actually the factors of awakening. Yeah, the energy again is roused up. Unflagging means that it is steady. It doesn't kind of subside. The energy is always there powerfully. Yeah, mindfulness is established and lucid when you have the energy. Then the mindfulness is strong. There's going to be piti and sukha together with that. The happiness is going to come with that. And then the body becomes tranquil. This is the a dependent liberation series in meditation. Uh, yeah, when the uh, you have the tranquility of the body is one of the deeper states of meditation, uh, and then the mind gets immersed in samadhi as a consequence. Uh, you gain the samadhi, and of course, the first thing that you gain is the first jhana, which is quite secluded from sensual pleasures, uh, secluded from unskillful qualities. Uh, I entered and remained in the first jhana, the absorption. Uh, and then the suttas carries on for a few pages, which I have left out to see the dot, dot, dot. Uh, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana, uh, the tevijja, the three uh, insights of the Buddha. And at the end of all that, we have that ignorance was destroyed or ended. Uh, knowledge arose. Darkness was destroyed. Yeah? Light arose. Uh, prior to this, you are in darkness. Uh, you don't know what you're doing. Now the light comes on inside. Uh, you see your reality. You see the world as it actually is. Uh, so that's another th- beautiful metaphor found in the suttas, and that, the idea of light arising. Uh, as happens for a meditator who is diligent, keen, and resolute. Uh, so if you are diligent, uh, if you are careful and heedful, uh, if you are keen, in other words, you keep on going, you are inspired by these things, uh, and you keep on applying yourself, you are resolute, uh, then this is what you can expect. Uh, yeah? This happens to these kind of people. Then uh. the Buddha says, uh, Brahmin, uh, you might think, uh, perhaps Master Gautama is not free of greed, hate, and delusion, even today. And that is why he still frequents remote lodgings in the wilderness and the, for- and the forest. Uh, but you should not see it like this. Uh, I see two reasons to frequent remote lodgings in the wilderness and the forest. Uh, 
I see a happy life for myself in the present, uh, and I have compassion for future generations. So right now, the Buddha uh, prefers to live in the wilderness, uh, away from people, away from civilization. Uh, the forest nature is always a solace to people who have gone a long way on this path, uh, including especially the Buddha himself. Uh, so he prefers to be by himself if he can. Uh, and uh, there are even suttas where the Buddha dismisses people so that he can just be in solitude. Uh, uh, this is specifically in the uh, Mahasunyata Sutta, I think, where he does that, and he, has, you know, he his mind leans towards dismissal, something like that. It says, uh, and he has compassion for future generations. Uh, the idea is that he wants to be the example again for future generations. Uh, so he lives in the way that he wants his disciples to live, so as to benefit his disciples. Uh, Indeed, Master Gautama has compassion for future generations, uh, since he is perfected one, a fully awakened one, a fully awakened Buddha. Excellent, Master Gautama, excellent. Uh, as if he were writing the overturned, uh, or revealing the hidden, pointing out the path to the lost, lighting a lamp in the dark, uh, so that people with good eyesights can see what is there. Master Gautama has made the teaching clear in many ways. Uh, I go for refuge to Master Gautama to the teaching and the mendicant Sangha. From this day forth, may Master Gautama remember me as a lay follower who has gone for refuge for life. So we have this uh, standard uh, passage that is often found at the end of the suttas. Uh, you're writing the overturned, right? And, and these little uh, similes are actually very... And it, they are very evocative. Uh, it is not just random. What the Buddha says is always meaningful and it is worthy of consideration. Uh, the world is overturned. We see the world in the opposite way to what it actually is. Uh, and the Buddha comes around and he shows us the right way up. Uh, so he writes what is overturned, right? Uh, a very important idea in Buddhism. Every, we see things in the, exactly the opposite way of what, what they're like. Uh, um, he reveals what is hidden, right? There's like a veil in the world. Things are hidden behind. We can't really see things clearly. Huh? And so you, the idea of a veil is you can see something is there, but it's slightly blurry, slightly uncertain. We have some idea that we are on the wrong track. We can't see what is going going on. And someone comes and pulls back the curtain or pulls back the veil, and then you can see the reality behind it, uh, revealing what is hidden, huh? Hidden is all these things on the path, like seeing non-self, understanding things like samadhi or whatever it is, but especially the non-self teaching. Pointing out the path to the lost. We are all lost. We don't know what we're doing. We're moving around the world without aim and purpose, not really going anywhere. Yeah, lost, trying to find our way. And because we are lost, we suffer like a lost person. We fall down a cliff sometimes and hurt ourselves really badly. Don't find any food because when you're lost in the wilderness, there may not be any food for you. So you hunger and you starve, wandering in circles, roaming around, coming back to where you started out. This is a beautiful simile for samsara, the idea of coming back where you started out. Yeah, it's not exactly the same place where you start out because it's more. It's not you know nothing is ever exactly the same, but it's essentially the same because uh, the qualities of mind and what you have kind of don't go anywhere. So you are lost. 
this idea of roaming around is a beautiful idea because roaming means movement without without goal or purpose and then uh, uh, lighting a lamp in the dark so people with good eyes can see what is there only if you have eyes can you see what's there eyes means that uh, you have uh, some tendency some proclivity towards the dhamma towards spiritual teachings uh, if you haven't got that tendency proclivity it's like you haven't got eyes uh, there is no hope for you uh, if you have completely wrong views heading in the wrong direction uh, so the buddha lights the lamp uh, the buddha is the eye of the world that gives us an opportunity to see what is actually exists the reality of things uh, this is the idea of lighting the lamp in the dark for people to see her. And then you become a lay disciple for life. This is kind of one of the things in those days that you always bow down, you take, take this refuge for life in those days. And people don't usually say that these days, maybe we should start saying that again. Hmm, there's an idea for you here. So next time, expect a new, when we go for refuge, expect a new Pali uh, line yeah, in there. <laughs> we can see if we can revolutionize Buddha. No, that's not really a revolution. It's going back to the roots, maybe. Anyway, that is all for this afternoon. So please keep on enjoying yourself. There will be some interviews again at 4, and then we'll carry on with some meditation at 6 and then Q&A at 6.30. Yeah.